Okay, um, we are in the second part of a series called, called For the Life of the World. And uh, I just want to give you a quick recap. So um, in the Bible, there's this main theme that's going throughout almost pretty much from the beginning to the end. And it's this theme called exiles. Exiles, if you, if you missed us, oh, where are we? Here we go, exiles. If you missed us last week, I just want to give you a quick recap because yesterday, oh, last, last week was like an introductory part of this whole series. And basically, exile is basically when God's people are living amongst people who are not God's people. So in the Old Testament, we see people, like from the very beginning, actually, we see a group of people, like people like Abraham, living amongst people who don't share the same faith as he does. And we see that over and over. Moses is in Egypt. He's a Jew, and he's living in Egypt. He's living amongst people that are not like him. We see story after story of that happening. And the question is, if you were to translate that to today, we, if you call yourselves a Christian, if you call yourself a Jesus follower, we're living amongst people who don't bow down to Jesus. People who say, yeah, you know, like, um, you could have your own beliefs, that's great, but, you know, um, but for you, you're like, well, you know, I want to be, I mean, this is what church is. We want to be around people who are like us, right? And, but we're not living in a world like that. And so the question is, what do we do when we find ourselves living amongst people who are not like us? And historically, when you look at the scriptures and when you look at church history, we've done one of two things or maybe both, okay? And we talked about this. We did this thing called the us versus them mentality, where we start building up walls. And I'll give you an example of how bad the church has done this, okay? So the church are like, hey, we're Jesus followers. The world, they're not. Hey, we, we, um, we're, we're ethical people. We're just going to assume that the world outside is not. Oh, you know, we are, we're, we're good people. You know, the people outside the church, they're, I don't know, maybe they're not. Like, hey, we, we're always right, aren't we? You know, when you live in your own echo chamber, you start thinking you're always right. It's like, we're right all the time, and they're not. And so after a while, over years, especially for evangelicalism for the past 250 years, which is how old this whole movement is, but for the past 250 years, the church started building up walls saying, hey, the world is dark, we're light, so we're going to build a wall around us, and we're going to start, you know, we're going to start You know, if the world is evil, we're going to create our own version of the stuff that's out there. So we're going to make Christian movies, and we're just going to make sure that our kids only watch those movies and then say that it's really good or something, right? Hey, if, if there's Disney out there, then we're going to create our Christian version of Disney. Hey, if there's, a, if there's um, music, then we're going to create our Christian version of music. And so we start creating these separate worlds, and that's called fortification. But here's another thing that's happened over the past few centuries, is that as we start building up these walls and we start homeschooling our kids and saying, hey, you, you know, you don't want your education from out there. We, you know, we, we're going to teach you ourselves. After a while, what happens is, like, you know, no matter how hard we try, we can't keep the world out. Because, you know, when we turn on TV, ooh, heathen stuff coming in, right? <laughs> so you know what we need to do? We need to go to the world, to the source of the evil, and we have to conquer it. So that's domination. We need to do what we can to make sure that, you know, if we don't want them to getting inside of these walls, then we've got to make sure that we stop it at the source. So we try to take over, we try to destroy, we try to cancel certain people and groups. But when we read the scriptures, what we discover is that God does not want any of this. He doesn't believe in us versus them. He doesn't want us to create our own fortified version of what's outside in the world. We looked at Jeremiah 29 last week. In Jeremiah 29, 
you know, God's people who are living in Israel, Jeremiah, who's a prophet, receives a word from God saying, yeah, you guys, the Babylonians are going to come over to your place, conquer your land, and take you guys into their land. You are going to be, pretty soon, you're going to be living in enemy territory. You guys are going to be exiles. So Jeremiah's like, I'm going to give you some instructions from God on what you're supposed to do. You should build walls. You should, you should dominate the sources of evil. No, he doesn't say any of that. What he says is, and this is a summary of last week's sermon, which is, I want you to live as if your well-being is tied to your community's well-being. I want you to bless the place you're going to be in. None of that, we're better than you, or you need to lose in order for us to win. No, you need to position yourself where you get to know your neighbors, interact with them, share meals with them, love on them. Make them, if you have to leave one day, God pulls you out of exile, make them miss you. They might say, like, we don't believe in your God, but we sure believe that those people were great people. Leave that kind of reputation. Now, this is a lot easier said than done, right? But that's what God wanted. God said, you know, I understand these guys have messed with your land, took your people and all that kind of stuff, but now you're living amongst them, and your job is to make sure that they are blessed. Make it so that you create paradise in enemy territory. Let them taste what a good world could look like. So the follow-up question to that would be, well then, how should exiles bless their communities? And this is where we kind of left off last week. We said, okay, so the role of people of God, that's us, we are supposed to go and bless our communities. How do we do that? And I said, well, it's kind of like an orchestra. And I learned a lot about orchestra last week after the sermon because all these musicians, they, they taught me. Okay, so first of all, that thing that a conductor use, is, uses is not a wand. It's, it's a baton, right? And then you're supposed to do this. One, two, three, four, right? No? Did I do it right? I don't know. They taught me, and I forgot already. That was a week ago, right? And the conductor, and I said, God is kind of like the conductor, and he has these different parts of the orchestra. And he says, if everybody does, the people of God, if everybody does their part correctly, then we can bless this world. And the first part, that's today, that we're going to be focusing on is, is relationships. We're going to be talking about why relationships are so important that we do it right if we want to bless the land that we're in. And, you know, that, the place that we are in could be your family. Maybe you're the only person that follows Jesus in your family. It could be at your workplace. It could be at your school. Okay, and by the way, none of these things that we're going to talk about has anything to do with you shoving down your beliefs into somebody's throat. Okay, we, we don't believe in that here. Okay, what we believe is that if you live the way that God has called us to live, and the only thing, like, there's no strings attached. All we're trying to do is bless the community, whether if they want to join the Jesus movement or not, that's up to them. We're not here to make anybody do that. We're here to let people know that we want to experience heaven together with you. We want to make sure that the world around us, that wherever we go, we bring a little heaven with us. So today we're going to focus on relationships, and we're going to learn today that relationships are vital, that they're central to God's plan, and that, that if we get this right, that we're going like a lot further into this, this, this movement of blessing the world than if we didn't talk about this. So that's why relationships is first. And if you think about relationships in the scriptures, the first relationship you think of is Adam and Eve. So let's talk about Adam and Eve for a second, okay? Because first, I love the book of Genesis. Okay, so we'll always talk about Genesis. But in the first relationship of Adam and Eve, 
if you look at how they are introduced in the story, and we're talking about Genesis 1 here, God is first creating this, the heavens and the earth. He's creating the waters and skies and all the sea creatures. And then on the sixth day, this is how the story picks up, okay? It says, then God said, let us, whoever us is, we'll talk about that in a second, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Basically, God says, this is who I am as God. I'm a creator, I'm a blesser, I'm love, I'm doing all these things, and let's just take all of who I am and place it in humanity. We're just gonna give it all away. Who we are, or who I, whoever us is they're talking about, we're gonna put that into humanity when we create them. So the story continues. So that they, they're talking about the humanity they're about to create, so that they may rule, rule, if you use a different translation of the Bible, the word rule right there could be, say, have authority over, to dominate. Okay, the Hebrew word, this is written in Hebrew originally, the Hebrew word for rule is a very interesting word. There's a lot of connotation attached to, to the word rule. And so I'll give you an example of what the word rule entails. Rule is like, like if you are a parent, you are quote unquote ruling over your children. But that doesn't mean that you, okay, well, maybe your upbringing might be different than most you know, other people, but rule does not mean that you're gonna tell your kids to do everything and they have to obey everything you, that you say. Because the word rule here implies, like, I am ruling over my children means I'm responsible for my children. I'm here to take care of my children. I'm gonna oversee the well-being of my children. I wanna make sure that they are raised properly. That's what this word in the Hebrew means, rule. So he's like, I want you, humanity, when I create you guys, I want you guys to be responsible, to take care of, I want you to nurture, I want you to do all that with God's creation. Now, this is the interesting thing. Up until this point in the story of Genesis, God was the one that was nurturing and taking care of and being responsible for everything. But we see in the story, like on day one, he created light. But there's no sun or moon, no stars. But on day four, God creates the sun and the moon. Okay, so what that means is God was doing something and he takes his job description and passes it on to one of his creation. In the beginning, God is creating animals by speaking them into existence. And then later on he says, and we're gonna create seeds. Plants are gonna bear seeds so that they could create. So again, God is taking something he was working on he's, you know, and then he takes that job description and passes it on to one of his creations. And here we have the ultimate version of that. I am overseeing all of nature. I'm taking care of the trees. I'm taking care of the animals. I'm taking care of all the, you know, the ecosystem, whatever it may be. I'm going to take that and I'm going to pass it on to humanity. So he says, so that humanity could rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and, next slide, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So you can see how God's like, all of it, everything you see, anything that the light touches, humanity, it is your job to take care of this. Now, if you know the story of creation, you know that it starts with Adam. And Adam is standing there like, okay, let's do this. I get to name all the animals, this is awesome. And he sees that there's like two of every kind, there's a male and a female, there's like, okay, uh, how come I don't have a helper? So God says, oh, it is not good for man to be alone. So God created woman. And now Adam has a partner. And together, they're overseeing, being responsible for, take, nurturing over God's creation. That's how the story goes. So it said, God, 
created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And see how I highlighted the word so? That means this is the reason. Why did God create humanity? It's because he wanted to pass on this grand responsibility onto them. And that's why he created them male and female. Now, I want you to get this, you know, let's, let's, let's make sure that we get this right, okay? So, this is the reason why God created humanity, so that he could replicate himself as human beings, so that they could go and take care of all this world. And when humanity fails, all the world fails. That, that's what he wants to do. But he doesn't do it to just Adam alone. He does it to Adam and Eve. In other words, the foundation of this world is relationships, Taking care of this grand responsibility cannot be done by one person. There needs to be a relationship that takes place. So, if that's the case, are there any examples in the Bible of good relationships that's taking care of God's creation? Well, let's see. Well, obviously, there's the first one. There's the Adam and Eve story. But wait a minute. Adam and Eve, didn't they have some issues? Like, they deceived, you know, like, they were deceived by the serpent, and then she was like, hey, you should eat this, and Adam's like, okay, he ate it, and then sin into the world, and okay, and then they had kids, right? There's Abel and Cain, but Cain murdered Abel. Yeah, so because humanity had a big fail moment right there, Adam and Eve had a big fail moment, um, creation was not being taken care of. They failed at it. Okay, well, let's look at another family. The next big family, uh, there's Abraham and Sarah. How did they do? Yeah, were they, were they um, being good stewards of God's creation? Well, let's see. Well, as a relationship, um, Sarah wanted a kid. Abraham wanted a kid too, but they weren't having one. So Sarah said, you should sleep with my servant, Hagar, and you should have a kid together. And they did. That was Ishmael. And, um, but Sarah eventually did have her own kid. And when that happened, um, Sarah's like, okay, well, Hagar, we don't need you anymore. You and your child. And they abandoned them into the desert, hoping that they would die. Okay, so that's not a good example. Um, well, maybe one of their kids, maybe Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, maybe that's a good example. It's like, wait, no, no, that's not a good one either because remember, Rebecca, they have two kids, Jacob and Esau, and Rebecca takes favor over one and then um, Isaac takes favor over the other one and Rebecca teaches her son to deceive the other one and the father so that he could get the birthright. Uh, no, that's not a good example of a good relationship because if taking care of God's world is founded on the foundation of good relationships, this ain't that, okay? So, well, maybe if you look at one of the big heroes of Judaism, maybe King David, King David, maybe he's a good example of good relationship. No, wait, no, he had an affair uh, with a mar married woman, and to cover up for it because he impregnated her, he tried to have her husband killed, and he su succeeded at it. And uh, yeah, oh, yeah, remember David had many, many kids? Didn't one of the, his sons rape one of his daughters? Yeah, okay, no, no, that's a bad example, bad example. Well, are there any other examples in the Bible of a good relationship. Oh yeah, you know, what about Hosea and Gomer? No, right? Because they get married and then Gomer prostitutes herself. And so, you know, Hosea is like, uh, I need to bring her back. I'm going to purchase her services and bring her. No, that's not a good example. What about Samson and Delilah? No, that's not a good one. Uh, what about that guy named Judah? No, no, he sleeps with his daughter-in-law in disguise. Oh, that's not good. Um, are there any good relationships? Are there any examples of good relationships in the Bible? Because it seems like if we get the relationship part right, then maybe we could bless this world, but it doesn't seem like there's any good examples of this in the, in the Bible. If this is the foundation of blessing a society, no wonder in the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament, we don't see that happening because we can't get relationships right. 
So the question is, why there's such a lack of good relationships in the Bible? You know, I've heard people say like, hey, you know, I want to make sure I have a biblical marriage. It's like, well, which marriage are we talking about? Right? Like, you know, any of those things on the list? Like, no, like, I don't want that kind of marriage. And so, wait, are you telling me, Kotz, that when we read the scriptures, there aren't any good examples that we could follow of a good relationship? Well, there is actually. There is a good example of it. As a matter of fact, this is the example that God wants everybody, at least his people, God's people, to follow. Oh, tell me what page it's on. What chapter? What verse? Like, well, there is no chapter and verse for this because it's all throughout the scriptures. And the perfect example of a good relationship is this. It's the Trinity. Wait a minute, Kotz. Wait, the Trinity? Kotz, I read the Bible from cover to cover. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's like, you're right. It's not in the Bible. But then these people who read scripture and studied it and meditated on it, they're like, when I read through the scriptures, I, I find some weird verses because there's verses about how in Isaiah it says that God is the first and the last. But in the book of Revelation, it says Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, beginning and last. So wait, wait, you can't have two first and two last. I mean, because if one person is a little bit late, then that's second, right? So did the Bible writers, did they mean to say, you know, God is the first and Jesus is second place? Is it like, right? No, no. It literally, literally says, Jesus is the first, he's the last, so is God the first, Father first and last. Well, how do you explain that? So these people who meditated on scripture, what, they were like, okay, well, there has to be able to explain these verses. They're not contradictions. Um, but, it, but so do you think that Jesus is saying that he is God, just like the Father is God, and so is the Holy Spirit God? Like, how, how do we explain this? But they can't be one and the same because there are verses in the Bible where Jesus is talking to God, the Father. Is he talking to himself? Right? Like, what, what, what's going on here? Like, uh, how do we explain this? So, and by the way, to figure out this whole Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, it took over 300 years for the church to figure this out. And eventually, there's these three people, they're called the Cappadocian Fathers. You don't have to know this, by the way. These three people called the Cappadocian Fathers, at the end of the, uh, like, in the early 400s, mid 400s, they're, like, talking about it. They're like, okay, you know, our mentors and the mentors of them, they've been talking about this for the past few centuries. I think we're ready to present to the world how we could explain these weird verses in the Bible. And they're like, okay, please explain. It's like, we're going to call it the Trinity. Okay, so how does that work? Um, well, the Trinity is like they're one and the same, but they're not. Like, really, that's the best. It took you 300 years, and that's the best you can do? It's like, yeah, well, how? like, because there's verse in the Bible where somebody looks to the heavens like, oh, there's Jesus, and then, and then, and another saying, they look up and it's like, oh, it's the Father. And like, wait, who's, who's at the throne? I don't understand. Like, there's so many co confusing verses in the Bible about this. That's why you don't find one single verse about this. You find a theme throughout the scriptures. But when these, these Cappadocian fathers, there's three of them, were asked, can you explain to us how this whole thing works like in a practical sense? They're like, well, it's kind of like, and they came up with the word, and the word is perichoresis. Okay, this is a word you probably haven't heard before. Okay, say it with me, perichoresis. Perichoresis, yeah. The perichoresis is actually two, two Latin words put together. Peri, which means like around. That's where we, we get the word perimeter or periphery. And choresis is where we get the word for choreography. It's like this circular dance. Say what? Yeah, okay, so when Jesus is talking to his father, right, like, okay, so they're two separate beings, but Jesus also says, my father and I are one, okay? And then 
sometimes he's like, oh, the Holy Spirit is given to me, okay? But then at some verses it says the Holy Spirit is God. So wait, is he giving himself to himself? Like, how, how does this work? It's confusing. And the best way they could explain it was, well, the three of them, they work as if they are a dance. Okay, so I'll give you an example of one of the verses in the Bible that talk about this. John chapter 17, and John seems to talk about this a lot. John 17 says this. This is Jesus speaking. Father, so Jesus is saying to his father, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. So there's this, like, the father is like, I'm going to glorify you, and the son's like, great, because I'm going to glorify you. So there's this mutual thing going on. But just one chapter before that, Jesus says something completely different. He says this, the Holy Spirit will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he, that's the Holy Spirit, will make known to you. So let's get this straight. If you're confused already, you're supposed to be, okay? He says the Holy Spirit is going to glorify Jesus, and Jesus is going to glorify his Father, and the Father is going to glorify Jesus, and that Jesus is going to glorify the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is going to give a message to us. You got that? (laughs) <laughs> it's this movement. And so what these Cappadocian fathers discovered is that God, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're not stagnant. Yes, God does not change. But how they work in this world is always dynamic. They're always moving. So sometimes you'll, you'll pray and it's the Father. And then they do this dance move and then it's Jesus. You're praying to Jesus now. And they do this other dance move, right? And then it's the Holy Spirit. It's like so confusing, but they're like, this is the best we can do after 300 years of research on this. Um, there's, a, there's a professor who's like 80-something years old now, so he's no longer working. But Dr. Cornelius Plantinga, I think that's his name, this is how he put it. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit glorify each other. At the center of the universe, self-giving love is a dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. Like, if you want to get to know, get an idea of what the Trinity is like, what you have to understand is that it's this constant movement of the Holy Spirit saying, oh, it's all about you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, me? No, no, it's all about you, Father. And the Father is like, me? No, 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 it's all about you guys. Like, no, it's about you. No, it's you, it's you. They're always giving themselves, emptying themselves to each other. They're doing this weird dance. The person... The persons within God, that's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, exalt, commune with, and defer to one another. When early Greek Christians spoke of perichoresis in God, they meant that each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. So imagine this. If I were to do a dance with, let's just say, my wife, I would say, you stay still, I'm going to dance around you. So, you know. I don't know. I don't know how to dance. My wedding was very awkward. So I'm like, you know, so I'm like dancing around, right? And then she would say, no, 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 Kotz, no. I'm going to dance around you. And so she starts dancing around me. And he's like, and the Trinity does that with each other. The three of them are dancing around each other as if they are the center of their world. It says, in constant movement of the overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the other. Like, this is the kind of relationship that the Trinity has. And so in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, when God created the world, we just look at it as like, oh yeah, God created the world and that's it, right? It's like, no, let's look at behind the scenes of what was happening. So if you look at these three red dots, this is like the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and each one is giving love to the other, emptying itself, himself to the other at all times. But they're not empty because the other one is emptying themselves into the other two and so forth, right? Now, if that was the case, which we believe it is, you might be thinking, it's like, oh, hey, look, there's God, the Trinity over there doing their own little thing. Isn't it cute? They're like dancing around each other. 
in their own, in their own little world. But that's not where this understanding of the Trinity ends. What happens at this point is, as they're dancing around each other, next slide, what happens is, as a unit, they start giving outward. So as they are loving one another, the effects of loving one another, emptying themselves into each other, they are also pouring themselves out into the world. And because of that, next slide, they were able to create the world, all the animals, all the plants, and humanity. In other words, the existence of humanity, the existence of humanity and the creation of the world are outcomes of God's love. This world wouldn't exist if there wasn't this selfless love that was taking place in the Trinity. Now, if you read through the book of Genesis chapter 1, you'll discover that humanity was created in God's image. When he says, in our image, he's talking about the Trinity. In our image, we create humanity. So Adam is standing there like, wow, I am just, I'm just so, I just want to, I'm just pointing outwards. I just want to love. So next slide. So humanity is pointing outwards at all time. But then Adam needs somebody to pour himself into. So we have, God's like, okay, I'm going to give you another person. And so we have another character, a partnership, where the other person is also pouring into Adam. And as they're doing their own thing, next slide, as they're doing their own thing, as a unit, they are now pouring into the world around them. And that is what a perfect relationship ought to look like, according to what this, the biblical writers are describing. We're always pointed outwards. Now, maybe you guys have been in relationships or maybe seen a relationship, maybe like in high school or something, where like, one person is like, I have so much love to pour out. And there's another person that's like, me too. And they get together. And then you just don't see them for the next year because they're like always into each other, right? This is not what the Bible is describing here. Okay, what the Bible is describing is the world is better off because these two people are together. Because when they're together, they're also blessing the people around them. They don't just disappear behind the locker and never see them again. You know, like that's not, <laughs> that's not the kind of relation they're talking about. Like maybe you come across maybe a couple, a married couple, or maybe just two best friends that grew up together or whatever the case may be. And when they're together, you just feel like the whole world is a better place. Like, look at those two people. They, when they're together, they're out serving the world. They're helping people. They're pulling over on the side of the road to help somebody who feels like they're stranded or what, you know, whatever the case may be. They're trying to invite new people into their friendship because they feel so alone. This is what this relationship is talking about. They believe that, that their relationship was not just for them, but that their relationship was created for the sake of the world. But the problem with the Bible story is that Adam and Eve, they didn't realize that potential because sent into the world, they failed even before they were able to get there. And then every relationship that I listed on that list suffered the same fate. Before they were able to finally realize the potential of how they could bless the world through that relationship, it just failed. Well, Katz, are you sure there's no example other than the Trinity, but that's too conceptual to me, right? Is there any human being relationship that actually exemplified this? And the good news is, yes, there is one relationship, one human relationship that actually exemplified this idea of two selfless people coming together so that they could bless the world. And that example 
is Joseph and Mary. You guys know the Christmas story? Of course you maybe do. Okay. Mary, she gets a visitation from the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel says, hey, guess what? You're pregnant. You have the Son of God inside of you. And he even gives her a warning. And that's going to lead to many, many years of suffering. It's like you're going to have a sword stab you through the heart. It's like it's going to be one of the most painful things. Because not only are you going to be ridiculed by society, you're going to see your own son die right in front of you. Are you willing to take this role, Mary? Joseph, you are about to become an outcast of your own tribe. Why? Because you are about to marry this woman, and people are going to accuse her of being an adulteress. One day, around the time your son's going to be born, you're going to go to your own hometown, Bethlehem. You're going to go to Bethlehem. And you're going to have to look for an inn. Why you don't have your own place in your own hometown? Well, it's probably because people are like, you can't stay with us anymore because you are going to be marrying that person who's been unfaithful to you. You have every right to divorce her before you get married. So Joseph, you could just leave right now if you want. And Joseph says, no. The way I'm going to protect her is by marrying her. Because in that culture, women didn't have rights. They didn't have any of that stuff. So if, you, if, you, if she's left alone, she'll probably have to resort to prostitution and stuff like that. And Joseph says, no. I don't care if my reputation's on the line. I don't know. Even if it means that every time I go to my hometown, I have to stay in an inn, I'm going to stick with her. So Mary and Joseph, they knew that they were going to be ridiculed. They knew they were going to be suffering. And they both said yes. They said, together, well, individually, I'm pointed outwards. I'm going to give myself away. And Joseph says, I'm going to give myself away to her. And together as a unit, they raised a baby. And that baby went on to bless the world. The kind of blessing that we're talking about here doesn't happen overnight. In the scriptures, we see example after example of how these things take generations to fruition. So even if you and your own families are doing a good job of being selfless and caring for each other, you may not see the results of that, of blessing your own community for a generation or two. But that is what God wants all of us to participate in. He wants us to, to pour ourselves out into each other. And as a unit, you are pouring yourselves out for the world. It all starts with a yes, a selfless yes. Now, Jesus, he's trying really hard to explain this concept to his disciples. He's like, I, I got to get this across to you. And he even says in parts of John, he's like, you're not going to understand this right now, but let me do my best to explain to you what I'm trying to tell you, right? And we have one of those recorded in the book of John chapter 15. This is Jesus speaking. He says, as the Father has loved me, okay, Father has loved me, so have I loved you. It's like, okay, so Jesus is like, God has loved me, and because I'm loved by God, I'm going to love you. There's this perichoresis that's happening here. So he's like, now I want you to remain in my love. Okay, well, how do we do that, Jesus? Well, if you keep my commands, what commands are you talking about, Jesus? He's like, I'll get to that in two verses. Okay, but so you know, hold, hold your horses. But if you follow whatever that command is, I'm going to reveal to you what that command is. You will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. He says, God has, my Father has been loving me and I'm doing everything I can to accept that love. In the same way, I'm pouring my love out to you, disciples. So do everything you can to stay in that love. Well, how do we do that? Well, you have to follow my command. What's that command? Next verse. 
I have told you this so that my, jo my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. So here it is. Jesus is like, if you want to know how to accept my love to its fullest full capacity, right? Here it is. Love each other as I have loved you. Well, Jesus, how have you loved us? Well, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You want to know how to love other people? The way that I'm loving you is by emptying yourself and pouring yourself out for somebody else. That's the greatest form of love. This is my command. In case you forgot, he says, I'm going to tell you one more time in verse 17, love each other. So what Jesus is saying here in this whole section is he's like, look, the Trinity, we have our thing going on here. Father loves me. I love my father. The Holy Spirit loves me. Holy Spirit, I love Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit loves Father. There's this whole dance, perichoresis happening. And from that, I'm going to take that love. I'm going to pour it out to you. And now I want you to love each other. I want you to replicate what's happening as a Trinity. I want you to replicate it amongst yourselves. That's what he's saying here. And in case you forgot how to do that, love each other in a way where you're emptying yourself. And if you're afraid of being emptied, don't worry because there'll be another person there to empty themselves back into you. You're like, this is what I want you to do. And this is how we're going to bless this world. Because if you get that right, and this is a theme that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, if you get this right, the world is taken care of. The unit of people who are loving one another in a selfless way is somehow through that going to be blessing the world. Well, cuts. okay, well, how do we learn how to love that? Should I just read the Bible over and over and over again? Because if I read the Bible over and over again, maybe I'll, you know, through osmosis or something, I'll learn how to love people selflessly. Sure, if that works for you, it doesn't work for me, but if that works for you, that's great. Well, maybe I'll just pray. I'll just pray over and over. I'll meditate over and over. You know, maybe that will help me love other people better. Sure, I mean, if that works for you, do that, okay? But when I look through the scriptures, when I look through Genesis and look at the patterns that we see, have you noticed that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see this, this humanity, this ideal version of humanity starting to form? And then in Genesis chapter 3, there's deception. The serpent deceives the woman, and the woman passes that on to the husband, right? After that, almost every single family in the book of Genesis, the number one issue is deception. Think about all the families, if you read through Genesis, think about all the families that you see in the book of Genesis. Their number one issue is deception. We even see one story where the mother is teaching her son how to deceive her brother and father so that they could get, he could get what he wants. These values of how we love one another is passed on through our families. So family is the key here. The parents who gave birth to you, the ones that raised you, are the ones who taught you how to love taught you the value. In a way, school, family is a school of love. This is where you learn how to love. Whether if they taught it with you through words or just actions, this is where you learned it. And they teach you, or they're supposed to teach you, the true nature of who you are, which is that you are supposed to be pointed outwards because that's what love requires of you. Your parents selflessly pour themselves out to you and they're saying, that is what I want you to do for the world. Now, not everybody here or anybody who's watching online or anybody has that same experience. But one day when you start your own family, you have the opportunity to get it right the first time. 
or maybe you don't, you're estranged from your family. You don't know who your family is, or maybe whatever the case is, you're like, it's too late for that now, Kotz, because I'm older now. I don't have, you know. Who do you consider to be your family? Your life group? Your life group to teach you what selfless love looks like. Maybe there's a best friend, a partner, who are committed to you. In that context, they could teach you what love looks like. Are they perfect? No. No one's perfect. But as long as we have that commitment saying, we're going to do everything we can, sharpen each other, how we, how, however we can to love the world in a better way, you know, those are the people that you want to be surrounded by. So once you have the family, because they're the first foundational people that can teach you how to love, right? then it eventually leads to love. This is like you're learning how to love now, right? Now, this is what you're going to learn in family, and this is something that I learned in my own family too. Family, love, is so unromantic. Love is so mundane. It's so humble. What we see on TV of like those, those grand moments of family, you know, or you know, the husband that always does something nice for his wife or whatever, whatever, that, whatever that might be, it doesn't happen all the time in family. What we learn in family is that love is not some grand gesture to save the world. It's a normal, everyday struggle. That we, in family, we learn to make mistakes and forgive and be forgiven. In family, it's where we learn how to share things that, are, that we're really attached to. And we fight over it. And then we go get over it by forgiving each other. This is family. Family is where we learn how to love selflessly. And after that, well, you're sent into the world. Because now your character is formed. And as you go into the world, you're going to give away to the world what you gained in your family. And that's how the world gets changed. In other words, family is the foundation. It's the first and foundational yes to blessing our society. Your family does not exist so that you could just love on one another. Your family exists to love one another so that you could love the world. We're not here to build walls. We're here to bless the world. And guess what? Family is messy, right? Family, family is like fertilizer, right? It's messy and sometimes it stinks, right? <laughs> right? And a lot of us who haven't started families yet, we're thinking, I don't know if I want to get into that. That, that sounds like something I don't, want, I don't want to even touch. I don't want to go near. But just keep this in mind. Christ entered a smelly and stinky world and he voluntarily made himself an exile so that he could make the world a better place. He wanted to bless the world because he loved the world. So if there's one thing you can pick up from this entire sermon, it's this. We are called to participate in the divine dance, every one of us. And what does that mean? Well, it means to be a gift to the society. It means to love society. So ask yourselves, am I, and if you have a family, is my family, and if you have somebody else you consider family, are we participating and blessing this world? Or are we just being critics on the sidelines, always just pointing fingers saying, that person did something wrong, they could do a better job, what are they doing with my tax money, you know, like whatever it might be, right? Or are we placed on this earth to love one another? And if we could get that right, as God orchestrates this world that he wants to bless, 
he looks at the, the relationship section and says, okay, make sure you get this part right because this is the foundational thing that you got to get right if you want to bless the world. Amen? All right, let's pray.